Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Ian Burke. Ian is a professor in wheat science at Washington State University. His research program is focused on basic aspects of wheat biology and ecology with the goal of integrating such information into practical and economical methods of managing weeds in the environment. Ian teaches the undergraduate courses in weed science and cropping systems. Hello, Ian. Hi, Drew. I put out a call for questions from listeners, um, thinking we might put together a uh, an issue or an episode with where we tried to answer all those. Um, but one question I got that I thought deserved maybe a little more attention was uh, a discussion of weed resistance. Um, this uh, person said uh, he's particularly interested in addressing uh, how when we use certain group 2 longer residual grassy weed herbicides, why the group 2 herbicide activity falls off so dramatically in subsequent years using most any other group two herbicides. So I thought maybe just a general discussion of herbicide resistance as it re- relates to group twos, and then that question of, you know, what happens when we use some of these longer residual herbicides? Do they, you know, have a, a different influence than some short-lived group two? So maybe maybe start off with where we're at in our in, in the world of herbicide resistance as it relates to our, our group two or ALS inhibiting herbicides. Okay, and that's a that's a really complicated question. Uh, there's a lot to unpack in that that topic. And <laughs> one, um, one question and a lot of a lot of things to talk about. And, you know, there's a lot of biochemistry involved in that answer. So I, you know, hopefully everyone's ready for a ride. Um, so you know, interestingly, the group two herbicides. You know, the first reported instances of resistance to those herbicides actually occurred here in the P, in the PNW, and it was kochia and prickly lettuce, and um, uh, you know a few other broadleaf weeds that that were identified as being resistant back in the late 1980s. And a lot of that work was um, good work done by uh, University of Idaho, Carol Mallory Smith, and and Don Till, and. Uh, that really sort of set the tone for what we we became, you know, what has evolved into a pretty complex story. So there's uh, an incredible array of group two herbicides, something like 70 plus herbicides that interact with, with the, what we call acetolactate synthase enzyme. And, you know, that's a, that's a story in of itself. It's per- certainly the most numerous mode of action um, we have. So each... Each herbicide is unique. It's different. It's got a different shape, um, but they all interact with that same enzyme. And so uh, it's allowed us to explore the mechanisms of resistance to the group two herbicides in a little bit different way than almost any other herbicide class. So you, you know, the, sort of the top level story when I talk about herbicide resistance in the group twos is there's two real flavors, although there's probably more based on recent, recent experience with other resistance types. 
there's what we call target site resistance, where that the enzyme has been modified in some way through <clears throat> a genetic mutation in the, the gene. And now the herbicide doesn't bind to it as well. And then there's metabolism-based resistance, where uh, through a separate enzyme pathway, the weeds have evolved the capacity to, to break down the herbicide very rapidly, often within hours. And so, uh, you know, that understanding of herbicide resistance to the group two herbicides really hasn't changed over the last 30 years. What has changed is our understanding of, of, the, of where those herbicides are binding to the, to the enzyme. Uh, over the years, there's been documentation of as many as different eight different um, changes in the enzyme, and they occur within the binding region of the of, you know, where the herbicide binds, or, you know, where the actually the substrate binds into the enzyme. They can occur just outside that binding area and still change the shape of the binding region. And so you, when you have that many eight, so. It's not, it's not as simple as just eight, right? So because of the way these enzymes are coded at the genetic level, there could be several other um, amino acid residues at each one of those mutation sites. And so instead of, it's like eight to the fourth different permutations you can wind up with for changes in that binding pocket and with 70 active ingredients to throw at it, um, there's really it's really very challenging to predict exactly what's going to happen with any herbicide in a particular weed species. So hopefully that gives your listeners a little bit of some, some, some sense of the complexity of what we're dealing with here with just this mode of action. It's really pretty fascinating. And so, you know, we often speak in broad terms, you know, the ALS in inhibitors, but you're telling us there's a lot of difference in amongst those. So while the message is simple, you know, try to avoid using ALS inhibitors all the time. It's really more complex if you want to dive into it. Yeah, and there's a um, there's opportunity there in, in science to uh, to understand how um, a particular mutation that confers resistance to herbicide X might affect um, a number of other herbicides that you would use on that same weed species. And it's not as simple or clear cut. Um, it rely, it, you know, there's a lot of pretty critical science that would need to be done to understand and be able to predict the outcomes of, of, of a development of resistance to that, that one herbicide and how it might confer cross-resistance to other herbicides. You, normally, we just work that out by trying something else, right? So you go try another group two herbicide. So downy brome comes to mind, or Italian ryegrass. You know, we'll go try PowerFlex. Um, if that doesn't work, we'll go try Osprey. Uh, that doesn't work, maybe we'll try Olympus. And, you know, I've just, there are three different chemical classes just in those three herbicides, all with a new, very unique chemical structure that all bind to the same place, generally speaking, on this enzyme. And so it's it becomes quite complicated to understand how um, how we could predict it in retrospect, we can look back and say, okay, so this group of weed, you know, this subset of of downy brome, all of them are resistant to PowerFlex. Some are resistant to 
beyond. Some are resistant to Osprey, but we can kind of begin to see patterns emerge and associate that with the point mutation that we can find when we go look in the in the weed. Um, it doesn't necessarily help growers out unless they're trying to identify one an additional herbicide that will work. But they often can just go spray to figure that out too. So. Yeah, I know uh, people send in. Uh, seed of plants they suspect of being resistant and you have a program to screen them and I've, you've shared those results with me and it seems like all the different bio, you know, some of them are resistant to all the group twos. Some of them are just resistant to the one that the person sent it in for. Some are resistant to a, a mix of them. So it's, it's really, it's a different story almost in every situation. And like I said, it's, it's hard to predict, hard to predict. So you were talking about, um, the early development of ALS resistance here in Washington. Um, and that uh, that example was with a product called chlorsulfuron, which is one of these long-lasting uh, group twos. Um, so getting to the, the grower's question about um, how does the use of something with long residual f affect other group twos, is, there, is it the same mixed message that you just gave us or is it um, – or is there something about these long residual group twos that's different than others? Yeah, the long residual group twos um, present a, um, a much greater selection pressure than, than group two herbicides that maybe don't last as long. It's also important to remember that it could be long residual and not necessarily be a significant selection pressure if the activity of the group two herbicide isn't that great on a particular weed species. But with chlorosulfuron, uh, that herbicide is very active in very, very low doses on a number of different weed species, particularly some of the ones we saw develop resistance pretty quickly to. And so you couple uh, hypersensitivity and the long residual, and it, it's a very strong selection pressure exercised over a long period of time, often in, measured in years, because there's some residual of that herbicide present that the germinating weed seedlings are going to encounter. And so instead of just applying a selection pressure to the emerged weeds you might be treating, you're functionally applying a selection pressure to all the germinating seedlings that are going to come up for the next two years. And that number is dramatically higher in terms of number of weeds you're selecting against. And so uh, we've come to terms with, with thinking about these long residual herbicides as a bit of a, a recipe for very quick um, and rapid evolution to to herbicides um, and that if you do work with a, a long residual and I can think of one that's just come on the market now that I probably want to pay close attention to and Dazaflam totally it's not even it's not a group 2 it's a group 29 it's a cellulose biosynthesis inhibitor but it's a very long lived residual um, soil active herbicide that controls annual grasses and the lessons we've learned with the group 2 herbicides is that when you have a herbicide like that it's really important to make sure that you have a program in place so that there's selection, there's multiple modes of action active during that long duration of residual activity of that one herbicide. That's how you integrate the herbicide modes of action. Okay. And that probably wasn't the case way back when. Um, they, I, as I recall, I was actually around as a graduate student back day, those days, although in the Midwest, not here. Um, and basically they just sprayed clean and that's all they needed to do. <laughs> and so uh, there was no other mode of action. And that's really a lesson of herbicide resistance, isn't it? That we've, we've learned it maybe a little too late or if we knew it, we didn't communicate it well, that you just need to bring more than one 
mechanism of action to bear on these weeds or you're eventually going to have resistance issues. And when I reflect on uh, what we've done with Downy Brome with the series of pretty amazing herbicides that have come along to control it post-emergence in our wheat, um, the mistake I feel like we've really made over the years is leaving a soil residual um, out of the program. You know, metribuzin was one that was around in the 70s and 80s and it was sort of a mainstay. And when these group two post-emergence herbicide came out for controlling Downy Brome, we we really kind of stopped using metribuzin. And uh, that that was an error. We should have kept that as an integrated part of our strategy, even though it can be touchy and sometimes difficult to use and timings, timing can be problematic and there can be replant issues. Um, the, the loss of the group two herbicide, post-emergence herbicides, is far greater than any kind of inconvenience we might have encountered with the use of metribuzin. So, um, you know, those are important lessons that we have to apply uh, as we move forward. I remember in the in the 90s telling growers, in this case western Nebraska, that they would never be able to selectively take downy brome out of their winter wheat. And then, and then Maverick came around and I was proven wrong. But now 20 years later, that message, I might have to revive that message. You're not going to be able to selectively take downy brome out of winter wheat because of resistance, unfortunately, because we didn't manage it the way we, we probably should have. Because they, those were that was amazing technology. I mean, I really was amazed when they came out with something that took a, a grass weed out of uh, winter wheat that way. Those, in many ways, were the glory days of herbicide discovery and, and introduction. I don't know that we'll ever see the numbers of herbicides appear in that way again. So um, that's the group twos, uh, which I think is the most used uh, group in small grain production. Do we have similar things going on with other modes of action or is that the one that's really capturing a lot of your attention and focus? Uh, I, you know, I guess I would say that that the question is also quite relevant for the group one herbicides where we've had, we have multiple active ingredients that interact with what is called the ACCA's enzyme. And uh, even those those herbicides don't have any soil residual activity you can still see some pretty interesting cross-resistance patterns. Um, so if you've used a lot of um, what we call the FOPs, so things like um, Assure2 or um, you know Fusillade or some of these other um, FOP-based herbicides, then you can sometimes see that uh, that confers cross-resistance to all the FOP herbicides at a stroke uh, and sometimes cross-resistance to uh, the active ingredient in axial panoxidin. Uh, by far the worst kind of, of target site resistance, though, in the ACCA's herbicide family is target site resistance to clethodem. And uh, it's been documented on in several different um, occasions where you can have a target site resistance to clethodem. And that, at a stroke, confers cross-resistance to all the other ACCA's herbicides. And so that's a, that's a looming possibility for ryegrass and uh, as we see these ACCA's inhibitors deployed in our canola uh, rotations and our, you know, um, legume um, rotations, and then also now in the aggressor system, the, that's a real possibility that, that we could be nearing the end of the utility of an entire mode of action because of that ability to confer cross-resistance cleth with clethodem. Okay. That sounds like a very strong word of caution. Be careful how how frequently and how you use uh, clethodem in your system. 
All right. Well, I think we've uh, discussed a, a, what really is a very complicated issue when you drill down into it, but in some ways also a simple message that uh, don't rely on, on a single mode of action uh, too much. Make sure you bring in some different uh, modes of action in, in either the crop or within the cropping system. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Drew. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.